Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Angela Reimer today. Now, Angela is a speech and language therapist, and she's working with Canterbrainer's Choir. So in the interview, we're going to find out all about that. But suffice it to say that this is working with people who've had brain injuries and using music as a way to help them recover. Music gives you such pleasure. So it's like smells. You know, when you smell there's that smell that reminds you of your grandmother. There's that mm. smell that reminds you of your home kitchen. Mm-hmm. I think it, it brightens your life. Mm. There, there's some sort of pleasure in it. So that stays a lot longer yeah. than the bad memories, I hope. I know you're going to enjoy this interview, so we're going to get straight into it. If you do enjoy it, then you might want to check out some of the other ones in the back catalogue, because I've interviewed about 140 other people. Now let's dive into this interview with Angela. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Angela Reimer from Canterbrainer's Charitable Trust. Thanks very much for joining me. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I know the amazing work that Canterbrainer's is doing, um, but I don't know all of the details, so I'd love to learn more about it. And I know your particular role is in sort of speech and language therapy, isn't it? That's right. Um, The choir is run by a music therapist and a speech and language therapist. Yeah. So our professions overlap and enhance each other. Yeah. So we both run it together. That's wonderful. And I, I want to dive deep into that and discover it and, and also just understand more about what it's like to be a speech and language therapist, because I'm fascinated by that. And um, But in order to ask some of those questions, and you've listened to the podcast, so you yes. know, I like to go back with people to the start of their journey and just find a little bit about where they're from. And then we can build up to why you do what you do today. Okay. So in your case, where are you from? I'm a local girl. I was born in the Darfield Maternity Home okay. um, in Canterbury. Yep. And my first two years of life, I was living in Oteira. My dad is a train driver. Oh. So mum and dad and I lived in Oteira. My baby sister was born and we moved to Springfield, huh. the home of the donut yeah, on the way yeah. to the West Coast. That's yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. And I lived there all my life hmm. um, till I moved into town to come to university so I'm very much a local girl. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So um, what are your first memories then? The the Otero, that was age zero to two, yeah, you said? Yeah, sort of zero so. to two. So I don't really have clear memories of Otero. Mm. Um, but I've got a, obviously a lot of memories of Springfield. And mm. I do like the mountains. And when I leave the city and see those mountains... Um, whether they're covered in snow or it's a beautiful sunny day or they glow at night time when they're covered in snow, mm-hmm. that's home. I right. get that sense of, oh, there's home. Yeah, yeah. that's special, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's amazing how the natural world can do that, you know, oh. and, and have memories that yep. f- come flooding back, right? So your father was a train driver. Yes, how, yes. How had he gotten into being a train driver? Had he always had an interest in it? or? I don't think so. Um, this is one of these things I wish... I ask him more, or I, I will ask him more, he's still alive, it sounds like he's he's not, but mm. um, I need to ask him more. But I do know he joined the railways as a young man mm-hmm. and came down to Springfield, which is, or was, a really big railway hub, mm. um, taking the trains over to the West Coast, and that's where I met my mum, and they got married and moved to Oterra, very romantic, mm. and um, then moved back to Springfield. Mm. So I think... 
well, I know Dad was the youngest certified steam engine driver in New Zealand wow. when he passed his ticket. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that amazing to think about steam engine driver, right? Like I know. The, the changes that have happened yeah. in relatively short period of time. Mm. And he was probably one of the last steam engine drivers, actually, mm. because it was... I think it was sort of the late 60s that they moved from steam to diesel electric. Right. So yeah. when would he have started as a, tr- a steam engine? I think he started in his early 20s. Yeah. So and what years would that have been? In 62, post- 63. Okay. Yeah, around yeah. that time. Um, he's originally from Auckland. I believe he started up there and then transferred down to Christchurch Right. Um, as a young man. And he was living in the single man's quarters out at Springfield. Okay. Um, probably a pretty rough life, actually. Yeah. So yeah. trains were a big part of your family then? <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember as a child, we lived on the poultry farm just outside of town, mm-hmm. or town, Springfield, you know, 80 people. Yeah. Um, we lived on the <laughs> poultry farm. Everyone knows everyone. And when Dad was bringing the, the train through from Christchurch to Arthur's Pass, he mm-hmm. used to stop the train outside our house. And mum would run us, me and my little sister, across the road, across the wee paddock, right. and up into the cab with dad. And we'd have our lunchbox, uh-huh. and we'd go up to Arthur's Pass with him in the cab of the train. Right. Yeah. Luckily, anybody who could prosecute him for that is long gone now. Right. Um, <laughs> so we can I, tell the story. Yeah, we can tell the story. <laughs> but I've got the most wonderful memories of sitting in the cab with dad. Yeah, we were perfectly safe. Mm. Um yeah, sitting in there with him, give mum a break, mm-hmm. and we'd go up to Arthur's Pass for the day. Wow. Yeah. And were there other people, was it shoveling in the coal and things to the, burn This it, was just the diesel ones. Oh, the diesel yep, ones. Yeah, yep. we never went on the steam trains. Okay. Um, they're much more open. Yeah. And yeah, on the steam trains, there's two people. There's your driver and your fireman. Yeah. And the fireman is the one who's responsible for keeping the fire going. I see. And I believe you sort of graduate from fireman to driver. Uh, and the driver's the one who knows all about the gauges and the pressure um, and, you know, more more coal, less coal. Yeah. Um, we need to open this up. We need to fill up with water. Right. So it was quite a responsible job. It's quite a specialised position, yeah. actually. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The amazing thing to me is, you know, at the time that steam engines were invented, you know, that was revolutionary the fact that you could go from this place to this place and it would Mm. you know just keep going well i'm sure i've heard that there was a health warning put out that you know if you went in a steam train you would travel so fast that you run the risk of some sort of injury was it going blind or your heart stopping or something yeah Yeah, there was all this technology just stay with the horse (laughs) you're just going to travel so fast it's dangerous yeah 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 so so the childhood that that involves um, were, what sort of things did you enjoy or describe yourself as a child what what type did you enjoy that you outdoors was really yeah, important it was uh, I had a wonderful childhood mm-hmm. um, I had both parents which was wonderful I had grandparents close by mm-hmm. um, we were a small town and it was an outside childhood mm-hmm. um, I remember we had an old black and white TV that sometimes went and sometimes didn't. Mm-hmm. So we didn't sit around watching TV. I did a lot of reading. Um, we had a lot of tree huts, made mud pies. Mum mm-hmm. and Dad owned a poultry farm. So there was always jobs to be done, collecting eggs, right. shoveling, shoveling um, fowl manure. 
We used to shovel it into bags and sell it. Mm. Hated it. Absolutely hated that job. Right. As you do when you're sort of 10 or 11. So how many, how many chickens <laughs> would they have on, a, on we, a chicken farm? This was in the good old days of battery heads, I'm ashamed to say. Sure. Um, I think we had over 1,000. I think. So that's a lot of eggs. Um, it, it's a lot of <laughs> eggs. We had to collect the eggs twice a day, uh-huh. and you had to feed the chooks twice a day, mm-hmm. make sure they always had water. Um, and battery hens was, was what we did in those days. My, both my parents are very caring and caring towards animals, and so it's not something they would have thought, oh, this is very harmful. Mm. You know, um, It was just what you did in those days. But our chooks were well cared for mm-hmm. they were always fed and watered um so i sort of take a bit of solace in that yeah we were battery farmers yeah well yeah. but you know the times change and yeah. you have yeah. no way to know exactly i'm sure that you and i are fish in the water and we don't see things that in 50 years when people listen back they'll be like you know yeah what? wow what, what were they talking about oh, but you know what what you don't know you you, you don't know <laughs> so oh, exactly and Mum and Dad were both environmentalists before mm-hmm. it was a, a really big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they jogged together every morning. It was so sweet. Dad started running in 1963, and mm. he's never stopped. Wow. Um, jogs uh, only in the last couple of years, and he's turned 77 yesterday. Mm-hmm. So he's only stopped jogging in the last couple of years. But anyway, Mum and Dad would jog every morning up mm-hmm. State Highway 73, the main road to the West Coast, mm-hmm. and Mum would always come back with rubbish some cans that she'd picked up off the side of the road wow so you know how at the moment there's a lot of trend about going to the beach and picking up 10 pieces of rubbish Mm -hmm. and everybody does this well my mum was doing that in 1963 right yeah Yeah. so they were good people despite being battery hen farmers yeah 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 but i i i think it's of its place and of its time when you when you look back at other generations it's it's a bit um in a way, it's a bit naive to judge based on what we think today. Absolutely. Looking, like I remember being a child in the 1980s and getting on an airplane and there were these little boxes where you could put your cigarettes yes. because it was hardwired into the airplane is smoking is fine, yeah. you know, and there was smoke all through the cabin. <laughs> and today, <laughs> exactly. of course, we would go, well, that's not yeah. very good. <laughs> I remember going to the doctor and him putting a cigarette out as we came into the room. Right. And he had an ashtray on his desk. Yeah, yeah. It's and incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> that was, you know, probably yeah. very early 70s. Yeah. yeah. So what else sort of shaped you as a child or what, what in, yeah, describe yourself maybe coming through the teenage years? and That's always a difficult one to reflect on because yeah. I felt my childhood was very normal, very standard because it was the same as everybody else around me. Mm. We had Springfield as a farming community. Mm-hmm. And also a railway hub. So we had farmers' kids and railway kids. Mm. And there weren't many of us, so we had to get on. Mm. Uh, if so you how did... many would have been at the school? Like... Oh, I'm thinking about 30. Right. Tops. Did they have like mixed classes? And, yes. You know... Yeah, we sort of had all the juniors <laughs> together and all the seniors together. Yeah. We had three teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two other girls my age and I think three boys. So pretty small graduating yeah, class. <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, I remember when my children went to primary school in the city mm. or in Christchurch, 
there were as many kids at their primary school as there were at my high school. Right. Because I went to Darfield High School. I see. And we yeah. had a, a roll of 587. Right. And my graduating class, Form 7 we called it, Year 13 it's called now, there yep. were seven of us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that does for you as a person or an identity growing up, you know, as a child with, with th- two girls who are your age, you yeah. know? <laughs> it's... Um, I think it was tough, and I think my my mum particularly did a really good job of making me stay um, humble and um, not getting too big big headed about it because I was I was quite a bit smarter than the other two. I was just I'm just naturally lucky like that, mm-hmm. um, and so there was a great potential for me to be you know. Top of the class yeah, of yeah. five. <laughs> and be a right little cow, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know my mum worked really hard to make sure that I knew I was just, we we're all different mm-hmm. and we're all the same. You know, that right. whole, um, everybody has something to offer. Mm-hmm. And I think because it was such a small town, you couldn't afford to get offside with anybody. Mm. So you learnt to, to adjust to their personality their nature Mm -hmm. and adjust yours accordingly so I think I'm probably pretty good at making friends Mm -hmm. because I can look for the good in someone and find that Mm -hmm. Um, because if you didn't do that you probably had no one you could be friends with right yeah Yeah, it's those small communities um, yeah and memories last a long time don't they oh yeah yeah the Hatfields and the McCoys I tell you they have them in every small town (laughs) right yeah yeah oh that's good so coming through your sort of high school time Darfield high school did you know what you wanted to do with your life or any particular areas of interest I was always pushed towards doing a music degree because I did music at school at high school and was doing really well at it Mm -hmm. um so I I play the trombone and the flute Mm -hmm. um and was in choirs and things at school. Just really enjoyed the musical environment. Mm-hmm. So I came into town thinking, I'm going to do a music degree. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you come into a great big university from a small town. And I actually didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't my kind of thing. So I ended up working in an office job. I was a case manager for accident compensation. Mm-hmm. And I started that when I was 18. So mm-hmm. very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked, the last time I worked there was 2004. So covered a long period Mm. of my life and it was working there that gave me an insight as to what therapists can do Mm. but I really didn't have um, an ambition to do anything particular Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed my job Mm. and I tried to do the best I could at that Mm. so talk to me more about what you observed in that role in terms of therapy and the the consultants or people that you were seeing who were having an impact on victims or you know who'd mm. suffered something well it's um it's a really tough job at acc mm. it's heartbreaking um you are working with people and families at times of huge crisis mm. uh, none of us expect to have an accident and none of us expect to having to have other people involved in our lives mm. so what i saw once i was in the serious injury unit so this is people with long-term brain injuries they've just had a major Mm. car accident drowning something like that right i saw how the good therapists made a really positive change in people's lives Mm. and i also saw some of the mediocre therapists or maybe they weren't mediocre therapists but they just weren't a good match for that family Mm. um and, and i saw you know 
I wanted things to change more or better and I got quite um, frustrated sometimes thinking I know we can help with this mm. um, and I wanted to be one of the ones helping instead of the one sitting there signing the forms paying the bills I actually decided I wanted to be one of the ones helping mm. and so the the ones that you saw that were having a big impact what was it that set them apart do you think for me it was they saw the person in their whole life environment um, I've since learnt training as a clinician you know you get assessments and then a prescribed therapy and then you reassess you know there's a, there's a way there's a formula mm. whereas the ones that I found had the best impact used their skills and knowledge but used it in a really um, oh I can't the, the word's completely gone from my head mm. um, but a very natural sort of way right. so like a holistic, holistic way sort of that's it seeing yeah the whole person and the environment and what they've gone through and yeah, everything. Yeah. Exactly. And huh. working with the whole family, not just the person with the injury. Mm. Because it takes two of us to talk. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be sitting here doing a podcast all by yourself. It's not yeah. quite the same. Yeah. Um, so a conversation takes two people. Mm. And any therapy, you've got sort of your giver and your taker, your doer and your watcher, um, the speaker and the listener. And it was the therapist's in all areas, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, speech therapy, mm. who embraced the whole family and the friends and the life that person had. Mm -hmm. Which has lots of lessons for many parts of life, doesn't it? It because does. How often, particularly sort of social services or things, but you know, people are treated as a number rather than looking at yeah. them holistically. In particular, I'm thinking about mental health and, yes. you know, like yeah. there's there's layers <laughs> and sometimes people just look at the surface without trying to go deeper. Exactly. Mm. There's a, um, well, I have a client who has a beautiful veneer of being actually quite switched on mm. and will answer appropriately. But if you scratch that veneer, there's nothing underneath. Mm. And so this person is so open to abuse um, and misunderstanding and people thinking that they are having them on, mm. you know. Um, and actually, it's, there's more to that person. Mm. Um, there is, yeah, there's just this amazing layer on top, but underneath it's so complex. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. So you're doing that role for quite a while, and then you get this idea, maybe I could be <laughs> yes. involved. Like, just describe how that, did it come, you know, was it a long time as you thought? oh, maybe I could do it? Or was it more of a, I love these moments in people's mm. lives, you know, like was it a, you're sitting on a beach and i Yeah, what I'm was the epiphany change. there? Yeah, was there an yeah. epiphany or was it more of a gradual thing? It I think it's, it's good It was more gradual. I loved working for Accident Compensation, absolutely mm -hmm. loved it. And the people I worked with were amazing, mm -hmm. but it's a political being. Mm. And we, every election, things would change. Mm -hmm. And every new government felt they could do it better. Mm. And I really felt for the poor person who was sitting there in chronic pain and things were changing again. So we had to get you reassessed again. Mm. And the demands... criteria. Yeah, the yeah. demands on the case managers changed. We became more about getting people back to work. Um, and s most of the time that was fine, but there's always the few that it mm. just 
wasn't the right time for them to go back to work. Mm-hmm. It's that bigger picture thing. It's not just the injured person. It's their whole family yeah. and their whole environment. So I was getting more and more disillusioned. And I was starting to have my own children at this time. So I was only working part time anyway. And then when my, um, so I had three under five. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't do any work at all for a while, except mm-hmm. at home crazily. Mm-hmm. And then when I was looking at what am I going to do now, I need to do something, my kids are going to school soon, Mm -hmm. I need to do something for me, and that was when I decided to go and study as a speech therapist. Wow. Um, And had you, so the speech therapy part, had you met many people who were doing that? I had met. So you'd kind of been able to narrow in. (laughs) I'd met a couple of wonderful speech therapists, Mm -hmm. and um, one in particular, he had children the same age as mine, so our lives you know, we spent a bit of time together because mm. we were both um, parenting children of the mm. same age, and he was already a speech therapist, mm. and he just inspired me. Mm. And so I met his colleagues. So I made a wee network mm. before I actually started training. Yeah. What was mm. it about him that inspired you? Um, I think he saw the potential for me to be a good therapist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a wee bit of work for him when I was on maternity leave, mm. and they needed a case manager to help another case manager. But that the initial case manager had to be employed as a therapy assistant. Because mm-hmm. um, just like everywhere else, ACC case managers have accidents too. Mm. And one of them had had quite a significant brain injury. So they needed someone who had a knowledge of the job but wasn't directly employed at ACC. Mm. And I fit the bill. Mm. And I loved doing it. And um, my speech therapist said, you are amazing, you need to do this, you Mm. need to become a speech therapist, I'll support you. Wow. And he did, he gave me a lot of really good, um, he understood when I needed to curl up in a ball and cry, and he also gave me that, it's okay, tomorrow will be better, and you can do this. That's cool, are you still in touch with him? Yes, yes I am, yeah. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah, His name's Robert McIntyre, he's moved up to Wellington now, Mm -hmm. and he's general manager of the Laura Ferguson Trust up there. That's cool. Um, Well, I always love to hear about people like that because particularly what you said is that he saw the potential in you. And Mm. I I say this quite often on the podcast. So if people have listened to enough of them, they'll have heard me say it before. But just to say it again, what's what's our role in the world? Who can we identify that has that potential and hasn't seen it for themselves? But if we helped them unlock the door of you're really good at this you should try it you know and I think that's a responsibility that that we have to help other people to unfold into all that they can become so I love to and whenever I hear those stories (laughs) I love to highlight them because there will be people of the the hundreds of people who are listening you know who is it in your life right now that you could be that mentor for yeah there's got there, there will be someone for each of us yeah and um and it was it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It yeah. really was. I I think I was meant to be a speech therapist, but also I think I was meant to be a speech therapist at that time because mm. the world experience I'd already had, and my experience in ACC, yeah, it, it's prepared me for this. Mm. And living through life and life's crises as you do, mm-hmm. um, and having children of my own, and it would make you empathetic to the to people that you're talking with I can imagine yeah Yeah. I think so and that also is probably my country upbringing as well Mm. you had to be empathetic because Mm. 
you needed them to be that for you as well. Mm-hmm. If there's only three girls of the same age and we're needing to talk about teenage girl stuff, we have to listen to each other because if I don't listen to her, she's not going to listen to me. Mm. So it's probably the way I grew up as yeah, well. Yeah, that's really yeah. great. So the study that you did, um, did you enjoy the process of getting into study and, and mostly. learning? Mostly. Yeah, yeah mostly. <laughs> how how I, long does it take to study? Like is it a couple of years? It's or a four-year degree. Four years, right. So you do a, um, a, a pre-professional year okay. where you take some speech therapy papers and psychology mm-hmm. or and linguistics, Māori, mm-hmm. just some general humanitarian type papers mm-hmm. then you have to apply and it's a restricted entry course so the year I did it there was 24 of us and I believe over 200 applied wow um, why is it so restricted is it there's just not that much well you need to do a lot of clinical placements okay so if you have too many speech therapy students you're not going to get a good clinical yeah um, clinical but the demand experience. is there surely like they oh, need lots we do. There's yeah. not a lot of jobs out there, unfortunately. I see. Um, yeah. That's a whole other issue. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to um, do another podcast yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. So you get. Started. So you start in on that with with 24 others, is it? Yes, yeah. yes. And we all, um, pretty much, we all made it through and made yeah. lifelong friends through it as I well. Bet, yeah. Um, and what sort of things? What sort of things are you learning in speech therapy? Like, because okay. I don't know much about it. I know. It, so. Everybody <laughs> thinks speech therapy is about lisps and stutters. Right. And if I say to someone, I'm a speech and language therapist, they sit up straight and go, oh, I shall mind my P's and Q's. Right. <laughs> like, no, that's not what we do. Yeah. Um, well, debunk some of the myths. What Absolutely. Is, what are some of the things that, yeah. Right. Well, speech and language therapy, obviously mm. you've got speech, but you've got language. You've got that understanding language Mm -hmm. so to be able to hold a conversation with someone Mm -hmm. I have to know how to make the sounds Mm -hmm. when it's appropriate to make the sounds Um, body language eye contact Mm -hmm. the way you're sitting Um, you've then got to know what's appropriate content Mm -hmm. and not only me talking appropriate content are you understanding it so it's all about mm. the whole big picture of communication. Mm. So there's a lot of non-verbal things that you're saying there. It's the it's the what are the hands doing? You know, yes. like we're we're looking at each other in the yeah. eyes, and you're seeing my facial, rec- you know, the That's way it, I'm, I'm reacting. getting feedback from you. Yeah, yeah. So and I'm reading that feedback mm-hmm. and adjusting accordingly. Mm. Like if you were sitting back, oh, I'd go, I'm talking too loud. Yeah. Um, yeah. So or I guess if I cross my arms like this yes. and what is that meaning and yeah. <laughs> or you're turning your shoulders away from me yeah. and you think if you've got um a child on with an autism spectrum disorder for example and they just don't pick up those social cues mm-hmm. someone has to teach them how to do that and help them to do that yeah not a hundred percent because we like our kids to all be a bit different mm. but that's what a speech and language therapist can do mm. help them to recognize that cue and work appropriately with it Mm -hmm. Um, with someone who's had a brain injury for example and they've a lot of people hit the fronts of their heads Mm. think about it head first yeah and the frontal lobe is where we get all that executive functioning all the higher level stuff Mm. so I could still remember my words and how to have a conversation Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't remember what's appropriate Mm. and I have had clients saying quite inappropriate things to me Sometimes they'll look at you and go, God, you look terrible today. Hmm. Or 
who said you look good in that? What, so they, the filter. The filter is gone. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that's another job for a speech and language therapist, right. trying to work with that filter. Yeah. One of the clients I enjoyed working with when I first started, um, her language was amazing, her understanding was amazing, and she was doing a degree. And it was just struggling with gathering all that information and putting it all in the right place. Mm. So my role with her was helping her to make sense of the information in a way that worked for her and her brain injury. I see. And she has a degree. You know, she's done it. She's very, very smart. Yeah. But it's she just needed some help in the process mm. of it. Mm. So what are some of the things, like the, the people who are listening, what are some practical tips or things that, that we could talk about in terms of the non-verbal, the body language type of things? Because yeah. that's always fascinated me, uh, you know, like the way that people are. Because I lived in Japan as well for five years. Yes. So the, the cues in Japanese culture are quite different to Western culture, you know, yeah. the way that people hold their heads and the way that they react it's it, different it's actually it? yes. it's it is like not just the japanese language it's actually the a whole other language of body language and yes. so it fascinates me um but yeah w- what are some of the things that they're teaching you in terms of reading people's body language well i really think it's just you try and mirror the other person's body language so if if for example i knew i understood that since i've had my head injury i don't quite get when the other person's ready to finish a conversation. Now, we've all had chats with those people who just, they'll follow you out to the car Mm. talking at you. Um, So my speech language therapist, for example, has taught me to watch for the cues, which will be you looking at your watch, you looking at the door. Mm. Um, So you can know what the body language is and try and learn how to read it again. Mm. Um, It's not easy. Mm. And a lot of it is giving yourself a break. It's okay, mm. you know. Things are hard. Mm. Um, one of my lovely clients at the choir actually has said, it's a bit of a mystery. Mm. He doesn't know exactly what's going to come out of his mouth some days. It's a bit of a mystery. Right. And to actually accept that's okay. Mm. It's all right. Yeah, it must be incredibly frustrating for people as well to to kind of remember what it was like before and yes. then after and know that it's not quite the same, but, you know, things have changed. That's probably one of the hardest things Mm. to work with as a a therapist is because I work with adults with a brain injury, Mm. um, they have histories and stories just like you and I do, and then something has happened and their path has gone completely differently. Mm. Um, And I think that's life experience for me and the type of person I am Mm. that makes me able to deal with that Mm. because you can't teach a speech therapy student specifically how to work with someone with a brain injury Mm. because it affects everybody so differently but what we learn as speech therapists we do physiology and anatomy a lot of neuroscience how that wonderful brain works Mm. the pathways where they go the actual functional side of things and then using that technical knowledge Mm. and knowledge of what is normal or normal developing we can then Mm. work with things that have gone a bit abnormal Mm. how how do you go into those sort of first meetings and and start the process of helping people well my first question always is what what would you like Mm. to have happen what would your outcome be Mm. and when i find out what they want 
I'll then work with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about me telling you what I can do for you. Mm-hmm. It's you saying, I would like this to happen. Right. So client-led yeah, rather Very than much client-led. Yeah. Because if the client is leading it, they're going to do the work. They're going to do the exercises. Mm. And it's like physiotherapy or going to the gym. Mm. I can't just click my fingers and fix you. Mm. I can give you a series of exercises, um, things to think about, and you have to do the hard work yourself. Mm-hmm. And practice and very all much, of that. yeah. Practice, yeah. be patient, yeah. recognize it's going to take time, yeah. So, when it comes to Canterbrainers and what's going on there, yeah. can you just describe a little bit about it and sort of how it got started and then what, what is actually happening? Right, well, Canterbrainers was started eight years ago and it was a chance meeting moment between the music therapist and a speech and language therapist, okay. wasn't me, but um. I am good friends with the music therapist, so I knew about it at the time. Mm -hmm. There is so much research out there about music and the healing power of music. Mm. And it's functional research as well, and that they can show that when you sing a song, it activates different pathways in your brain Mm. to what saying the same words does. So we know that there is great neural activation Mm. when when you get involved with music. So... There was already a choir in Auckland called Mm -hmm. the Celebration Choir. It had been going for about a year. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, right, let's get going. Let's try starting a choir in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. And Susan and Kimberly were the two involved. Kimberly's the music therapist, Susan the speech and language therapist. Mm -hmm. And I was working at St. John of God out at Horswell at the time. So I brought a few people along to fill in the numbers in the choir. Mm. And... Then it just gradually grew, mm. and now it's. I think we've got about forty to forty-five members. Wow! Uh, there's a wee few from Saint John of God still, but mostly it's just community members. Yeah, and are are all of these people? They've had some injuries. Yes. They have some communication issue. Yeah, and um, mostly it's stroke or brain injury okay. later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few who have had long-term problems from early childhood mm. but mostly it's adults who's who've had a stroke car mm. accident some form of brain injury or have multiple sclerosis mm. or parkinson's some sort of neurological brain condition mm. um, so they are our, our main clients mm. it's an amazing thing isn't it music oh, and absolutely the, the power of music i'm just reflecting um and i'm kind of getting tears in my eyes because i'm just thinking of my grandmother and she got Alzheimer's, mm. and she had played the piano for literally her entire life. You yeah. know, like she must have started when she was five type of thing. And she passed away when she, I think she was 92. And at the end, you know, music was still really powerful yes. for her. And, and she she could she could play, you know. And, and it's, yeah. so it's just the that part of the brain, um, you well, know. Well, it's got to be a pleasure part of the brain, doesn't it? It's, yeah. Music gives you such pleasure. So it's like smells. You know, when Mm. you smell, there's that smell that reminds you of your grandmother. There's Mm. that smell that reminds you of your home kitchen. Mm -hmm. I think it it brightens your life. Mm. There's some sort of pleasure in it. So that stays a lot longer than the bad memories, I hope. Yeah, definitely. And so what are some examples of people who've been, um, you know, impacted by the choir and and what's going on in terms of positive results and feedback and... 
We get so much positive feedback. So what happens, I'll give you a wee hint of the structure of the choir. So a daily event. Mm -hmm. So Kim and I arrive and set up the room. Mm -hmm. And we start with a couple of songs. Heidi Mai, welcome to our choir. Mm -hmm. Just to get people warmed up, welcomed, sitting down. Mm -hmm. It's quite a logistic nightmare to get 40 people to one place for 10 a.m. When there's wheelchairs and taxis and, Mm -hmm. you know, some people have carers drop them off. Other people are able to come independently. So mm. we aim for 10 o'clock, but mm. sometimes it's a few minutes past. Mm-hmm. So we start by singing, welcoming everybody in. Then I put my speech therapist hat on and make people do breathing exercises, posture, mm-hmm. tongue exercises, mouth exercises. Because if you can't speak very well, you don't speak very often. And it's very much a use it or lose it scenario. Mm. So I jokingly tell them it's physiotherapy for the face. Mm. So we get people poking their tongues out, big grins, making faces to warm up those muscles to make them work again. Mm. And it's probably the only time in the week that they actually work like that. Mm. And then we move from that onto more structured singing. Mm. Um, and we could literally do an hour podcast on mm. why. Kimberly and I choose the songs, mm-hmm. what the purpose of them is. But the overall thing is there's a purpose for every song and every member of the choir will get something, whether mm-hmm. it's loudness, speed, um, just breathing and intonation, articulation, a memory of some words. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets something out of the songs. Mm. Wow. And um, Kurit's having a great impact on them as well, because I think you, you run some concerts from time to time as yes. well, right? Yes, we have two concerts a year, yeah. um, a midwinter one and then a fantastic Christmas gala. Right. Um, and they sound amazing. Mm. You know, people come thinking um, that it's going to be a bit of a, you know, they're coming almost as charity. Oh, we'll just come and listen to Nana's choir, you know, <laughs> roll their eyes at, yep, yeah, we'll do this. And they're blown away by the amount of musicality in it mm. um, and the amount of passion and joy. Mm. And we're supported by some amazing musicians, which um, just, you know, when you sit next to someone who does something very well, mm. it lifts you up. Well, we have some amazing musicians who've had strokes. And they are in the choir now too. So we've got really great um, role models and mentors in there. Mm. Yeah, That's really great. And just putting on the hat of the music therapy side mm-hmm. of things for a bit. Oh, music therapists are amazing. Mm. Let me just tell you, um, they combine bits of speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, and then bundle it all up together with this amazing talent Mm. and they're able to use music to access those broken pathways or rebuild the broken pathways and probably the best way to to explain what a music therapist does because I'm not one I love them but I'm not one (laughs) is to give you an example Mm. um someone might might be just quite despondent, not able to speak, they've had a stroke, mm-hmm. they have a condition called aphasia, which means loss of language. You start singing Happy Birthday or a song that's very familiar to them. A lot of Queen songs are quite good mm. for this. <laughs> um, start singing Happy Birthday and they will sing it with you mm. because that's in a different part of their brain mm. and you see their face brighten and they're going, I can do this. Mm. So the music therapist's role is to 
pick out what it is that's going to benefit this person. Mm. Um, for some people, they're so full of anger at what's happened to them that actually just a session with some really loud, loud music and some good drumming mm. allows them to express what we could say in words. They can say it physically and with sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about accessing the different parts of the brain, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. And doing that in a way that's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen um, our music therapist help someone to walk by giving them a very strong beat. She stood there with her guitar and it's been a very strong sound, a very strong song, mm-hmm. and this person has marched to that beat mm. um, because the music is accessing a different part of their brain. It's igniting different pathways mm. and they're able to to move in a regular speed with it mm. yeah that's really great oh, it's so cool. it's, it's so and, cool. it, and it must be nice for you as well to see people transforming or having something open in a way that they wouldn't otherwise yes right? yeah. yeah um one of the things i've noticed in the choir i really focus on breathing mm. you've got to breathe right down deep in your belly good diaphragmatic breathing mm-hmm. now if you've had a stroke and you've spent a few months lying down, you've lost a lot of weight and condition, Mm -hmm. and you're now in a wheelchair. Your posture is pretty Mm -hmm. terrible. Your breathing's not so great. So I really focus hard on making sure people are breathing well. And the difference, if I push all the air out of my lungs and then talk to you, I'm really talking. Really depressed, isn't it? Yeah. But if I take a proper breath and use good breath support... Mm. And I can hear the people in the choir. I can hear the difference. And they have said, oh, my husband could hear me from the other room. Or my mm. son could hear me from outside. And he came running in. Mum, what's the matter? Nothing. I'm just talking properly. Mm. So it's those little things that have a great impact on every day. Yeah, that's really great. And what are some things that you would say just for for anybody to be aware of or, you know, taking deep breaths is important, right? To center you down. and It, it, it is. It, are there, you know, you've mentioned posture and yeah. I immediately started to... You did too. <laughs> adjust my posture. Um, but are there other things that all of us could be doing better or, or learning from? We could all do with breathing deeply occasionally. Mm-hmm. It is, you're right, it's very centering, it's very calming. Mm-hmm. I often shrug my shoulders, bring mm-hmm. them up to my ears drop them down, Mm -hmm. and immediately it resets your posture. Right. Yeah, and another, if you're feeling a bit tired, a bit out of breath, a yawn, Mm -hmm. a good old-fashioned yawn like a child would do. Because when you yawn, you take your ear right down to the bottom of your lungs. Right. Um, And that makes you think... So we shouldn't stifle the yawns, embrace them. Yes, yeah, (laughs) embrace a yawn. Um, I love it at choir when I'm able to start a good yawn cycle going. I'll stand up the front and stretch my arms like a toddler and go... (gasps) And then all of a sudden, they're all yawning. And I'm like, feel it, feel it, feel that ear. Feel it right down the bottom of those lungs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think it's good to get little tips like that, even for anybody to be aware of, right? It is. Because we do sometimes get so bound up and... Particularly these days with computer screens, you know, I'm sitting there, click, click, click. Or even with our phones. Yeah. We slump over our Mm. phones. You Mm. don't hold it up here and look at it. You hold it down by your knee Mm. and you're bending into a little curve. Mm. Yeah. So we all need to occasionally just take stock, sit up straight, Mm -hmm. like we used to do at school, sit up straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's really great. And can I ask a question just about speech and um, language and 
learning language, like、mm-hmm. learning another language. Do you know if、um, much research has been done on that? Like, if you start to learn another language, what's that activating in your, in your brain? Because、yeah. that's always been curious to me, you know, people who grow up bilingual. Oh, that's, you know,、yeah. and, and, the, and for them, it's, it's not another language, it's just talking. Yes.、Um, I, I'm fortunate because I speak a bit of Spanish. And it was, my mother was from Panama. And so it's much, it's, it feels almost like speaking English. You know, I'm not fluent, but it definitely feels like it's my, you know, my. It's brain easy is and、activated. relaxed. Yeah, don't it's, not a, it's it. not a forced thing. But, yeah. yeah. I don't know so much about learning language as an adult,、mm. um, but obviously any learning is good.、Mm. The more learning we do, I. Often recommend do a Sudoku or a crossword every morning.、Mm. Keep that brain, just push it a little bit, keep、mm-hmm. it active. But I do know that bilingual language from childhood is, there's all sorts of really positive research about that,、mm. about how it opens you up to being a better learner. In a lot of ways, you're able to manipulate things in your head a lot better. Right.、Um, because I, maybe, I suppose you've got. A bit more open, maybe. Exactly. To your brain is used. Yeah, yeah, used to different structures, particularly, you know, we always think of th- things like, you know, I want to go to、mm. the shops.、Mm-hmm. And it's that, it's that structure and it's that way it goes. Whereas if you speak a different language that has a different、mm-hmm. structure for their verbs and nouns,、mm-hmm. um, your brain is probably going to be a lot more fluid about it. It's like, yeah, that's how that goes and that's how that goes、mm-hmm. and that's fine. Whereas I only speak one language.、Mm-hmm. Um, I really struggle when the verb has to be on the other side of the noun, or,、mm. you know, that just really makes my brain work、mm. really hard. It's、mm. not easy. Yeah, I agree, I agree with、yeah. you. <laughs> I, 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 I lived in Japan for five years,、mm. so the Japanese sentence structure is very different to English sentence structure.、Yes. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think it probably does open your mind a little bit to different ways of. You know, it's not, there's not one way to do it. Exactly. They're so, all right. Yeah. 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 And it, I know it leads to some beautiful、um, phrases when you have bilingual children、mm. and they mix their languages、mm. and then it becomes like a family language.、Mm. Well, any, any communication's got to be good.、Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. So if people want to know more about Canterbrainers, would it be best like a website or Facebook? Is that how they can find out more? Absolutely.、Yeah. So we do have a Facebook page,、yep. and it's Canter as in singing,、mm-hmm. and also as in Canterbury,、mm. and Brainers. So it's all about your brain.、Mm. Um, yeah, so it's not Canterbury Choir, it's Canter Brainers. So think about yeah. brains. Yep, yep. <laughs> and we do have a website. Canterbrainers.co.nz, and we're on Facebook as well. Yeah. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes for this episode, we can put links to things. That would be、so、lovely. I'll, I'll get lots、yeah. of links, and then if people are interested, they can click、mm. through and find out more. Because I guess at the website, there'd be some, some information, and absolutely you know, and, could find out more. And where we are, you know, we, we sing every Wednesday morning. Um, at the Mary Potter Community Centre in Durham Street.、Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all our contact details. And our website is aphasia friendly, communication difficulty friendly. Okay. Because、mm-hmm. don't forget, communication is also about reading and writing.、Mm. Um, so often, if we're confronted with a page full of a lot of information, if you have a brain injury, you just switch off. It's、yeah. far too hard. Yeah, yeah. So we have made all of our information very friendly to access.、Mm. 
Yeah. Oh, that's really great. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating to learn a bit about it's speech gone so and language fast. therapy. I know it always does. Yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe what we can do is, yeah, um, there's a lot of those topics. We could have gone for a whole hour. I could tell. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think I think I might have to come back sometime. Yeah. Maybe at some point. Yeah. yeah we'll get you back in, and and I'd love to chat with some of the other people involved as well because yes. I, I think there's a lot that we can learn from. Yeah. The different ways of of how we can help people, you know, who have had a brain injury or yeah. have had some some trauma like that. And there's know. quite, there's a lot of people. It happens more often than you think. Yeah. People in their 30s, 40s, 50s are mm. having quite massive strokes mm. and having a complete change in their life. Mm. Uh, you know, I know you, know you don't expect to get to 50 and then suddenly be dependent on someone else. Um and it's happening more and more. Mm. And they don't know if it's lifestyle or, or probably is lifestyle, but mm. who knows? Very, very fit people are having st- strokes. So it's not just yeah. um, the sort of stereotypical drinker, smoker, sit down, do nothing person. Right, right. Um, we have very fit men and yeah. women who have strokes. And so there's a huge need for what we do. Mm. Um, because the first thing that happens is your life changes mm. and your contacts change and your work life changes mm. um, and your access to the community changes. Yeah, and so what you've done for 25 years or whatever. You can overnight. no longer do. Yeah. 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 So. And that's any sort of role, whether you're a hairdresser or a milkman or a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know, you can no longer do it. Yeah. And so what does your life look like? Mm. When that happens, and this is a spot that the choir can help with, mm. because we're all in the same boat. Mm. Oh, that's really yeah. good. Well, yeah, I really appreciate your time and just to yeah. chat about it. It's been really in, uh, insightful to go a bit deeper and learn more about what a speech and language therapist actually does. Mm. So, and we've really yeah. only touched the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, we'll do a part two sometime. <laughs> I'd like that. Really like right. that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Angela. I know for me, I just loved hearing about her life story and particularly how it is that music can help people and what it is that she does as a speech and language therapist. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the earlier interviews in the back catalog. Until next time.